Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we're watching Poltergeist. A family's home is haunted by a host of demonic ghosts. Yep, it's spooky time, y'all. Boo! I mean, it's 2020, so it's all spooky all the time. Well, not, why'd you have to bring it down? Because it's 2020, David. <laughs> the year of our demons. <laughs> Nothing will be scarier since the event. The event, correct. <laughs> correct. Oh, goodness. So, yeah, it's spooky times, y'all. So we're watching spooky films. And our first movie this week, honestly. Not that spooky. But I love it anyway. I really, Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Like, we kind of... <laughs> movies have been weird for us lately. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> we needed to take September off. Virtual school. Summer was difficult. Like, it's just it's 2020, y'all. It's been a little difficult. Yeah. Uh, so we need to take a minute, and so we're looking at movies. We're like, uh, you know, let's watch, let's just watch, let's watch Poltergeist. Our kids have been asking for scary movies, uh-huh. which kind of caught us off guard. And we were we we knew we needed to watch this for about five different reasons. One of them being, can our kid watch this? And I'm gonna tell you now, not unless they're a little bit older. Yeah. Our older child, we'd say yes to. Our younger one, we're saying the only reason we'd say no is that he is already gets really scared of thunderstorms. And thunderstorms are like the impetus for a couple things in this film. And I don't want that to set him off more. He's the one when he hears thunder or lightning, he goes, is there going to be a tornado? And then he runs into our room. So I don't want that to become worse for him. There really is a level, though, which this is the perfect kind of family scary movie. They probably couldn't have done any better while still trying to maintain a family audience for this film. Yeah, like this is like I would say this is like really a spooky movie and not so much a horror film. Well, it's Spielberg. I mean, true, but like it's not super gory and gross. It's just more. Yeah, and I think that's the trivia is going to reveal a lot about this movie and how it came to be made because there's a whole lot of controversy and almost history around this movie. Sure. But suffice it to say, this is the most Spielbergian take on a classic horror film, a horror haunting film that you could do Mm -hmm. because there's all those low level shots where you feel like you're in the eyes of a child. Oh, yeah. And you're seeing all this happen. And I, the thing is, that's what makes me fall in love with the movie. Sure. Because otherwise, it's just kind of hokey. And you're dealing with 1982 special effects, mm-hmm. which are pretty rad, but they're dated. Sure. And so this movie could easily just stray into cheesy territory or schlocky slasher film. But because it's got all those little Spielberg touches, mm-hmm. it feels way more real. Sure. All the overacting never feels unnecessary because you feel like this family is going what the fuck is happening (laughs) it's more enjoyable than obnoxious yeah it's a fairy tale Eh, you know what it reminds me of the lady in the water it's got those vibes for sure it does and i love lady in the water yeah that movie's great but i will say this script much tighter Whatever. That's that series was great. It was a great series. That was no, 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 a great no. series. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not doubting that movie. We gave it high marks. But I. I think that's the other thing. This movie has a story that is tight. It gets mm-hmm. in and tells its story and gets out. Yeah. And that is always a great thing. 
Oh, yeah, that's good. It gets to the point really quickly, too, which I also like. I love it in a horror film where we don't go like, and especially in something like this, we don't get too in our heads about like what the thing is, which I also like. Like sometimes that can be super fun and sometimes, you know, the mystery of it all can be entertaining. But especially with these older films, it's like, all right, what is it? Okay, we, we saw what the thing is. Let's go. The fact is, unlike some of those movies where they, they take until forever to get to the twist. Sure. This movie is, here's the problem. Now we're going to escalate that problem throughout the rest of this movie. Yeah. And that's where they get into the tension and pull. Sure. They've already revealed that your house is possessed by poltergeists. But now all the stuff surrounding that is what's going to be complicated. Yeah. And the thing is, I knew the why. Yeah. Because I had actually seen the ending on TV. Because this is one of those movies they played on TV all the damn time. There's not much you have to take out of this movie to put it on television. (laughs) So the swimming pool scene, when she's trying to get out of the swimming pool and she's pulling up skeletons, and then I I can still hear it in my head, Craig T. Nelson yelling... Son of a bitch, you moved the cemetery, but you left the bodies, didn't you? The son of a bitch, you left the bodies and you only moved the headstones! You only moved the headstones! Why? Why? Oh, it's so good. I remember that. Because that creeped me the fuck out. Oh, it's creepy as fuck. Because, like, Diane used to be a super duper scaredy cat, and Diane didn't want tour films. We've been exploring that on this podcast, and I'm (laughs) super intrigued by horror films now as a storytelling device. So, like, I'm way more intrigued, and I'm way more like, I want to watch more of these. I'm here for it. So I was excited to watch this movie for a variety of reasons. Most people be like, okay, so what's this journey this family goes on? Yeah, it's a family drama as much as it is a horror flick. Sure. And that's what makes it so entertaining. (laughs) (sighs) The budget for this movie was $10,700,700. Okay. It's a decent chunk of change in 1982. Certainly, especially for a horror film. Total gross in the US, it made $77,150,000. Now, here's the craziest part about this. This is an Amblin production. Of course it is. So it's Frank Marshall. Sure. Steven Spielberg. Yep. And at that time, associate producer Kathleen Kennedy. You for now reasons, but pretty freaking cool that she was already in the Amblin group. She's a pioneer in her field. She's just done some shit to some franchises that I'm not pleased with her about. Since she joined Disney, it's started to go off the rails. She's fucked up some Star Wars shit, okay? The fun fact about this is, and this also plays into some of the directing and writing and all this stuff, this movie came out within a week of E.T. Those movies were being made and were planned on being released simultaneously basically that feels dumb you would think it feels dumb well okay they're not the same genre at all no they okay so that okay so there's that but in a way they're also very there's a little conflicting you've got little kid story Uh uh-huh family drama yeah creepy elements Mm -hmm. spielberg exactly (laughs) little girl (laughs) like like that yeah Little blonde girl, because that's very specific to Spielberg. The original cut of this movie got an R rating. It was far more violent. I knew that. Far more gory. And they took out every single death 
and every mm-hmm. single super gory scene okay to get the rating for this movie there was no pg-13 at the time so they were aiming for a pg part of the reason for that was that spielberg said if these two movies are going to come out with one another i want families to be able to do a double feature i oh. want two of my movies to be family friendly and be able to double up on each other it's kind of a brilliant move that he pulled <laughs> that is actually that is a brilliant move that is a br- no i get that that's actually really that makes me be like why aren't more studios doing shit like that because they don't have steven spielberg no, no. running the show but fuck steven spielberg because he doesn't make this stuff anymore he doesn't make family <laughs> movies he makes war films now fuck off yeah he's no no yeah, but like why aren't studios thinking okay i'm gonna make um we're gonna release a double feature and we're gonna do the animated film with a voice of the rock and then a family friendly live action film that features the rock like we're gonna do the animated film and then you're gonna watch jungle cruise i mean it comes down to to shareholder stuff and true but here's the thing like what disney come the fuck on i don't know i don't know why they don't try it because it clearly works that's genius we have especially now i mean yeah, we're stuck inside, but if you were releasing movies in this type of package deal sort of way, people would go in for it. I wonder if maybe that's a way where you go independent, quote unquote, where you find somebody who's got a specific voice that can double up like that. But it's it's not about being independent. It's about it's about being able to package two different stories together in some tangible way. Here you've got you had a studio who had somebody creatively in charge of both of them who said they're both going at the same time or close enough together that you could say they're at the same time. I get that. That makes sense. Nowadays, you could do the same fucking thing. You just need a producer with the audacity to you do need, it. You need a producer. It's and it's it's just a studio. And here's the thing. There are like two fucking studios now. And it there's one. It's Disney. Disney owns all the fucking things we're going to buy <laughs> and watch and see. Fuck you, Disney. Also, I love you. You you make everything I like. We still have MGM and Universal. We we've got some other players. <laughs> okay, so we have three, but each one of those could easily do this without any problem. Yeah, like they each own enough fucking franchises and actors, and they all are at the point now where they have to play nice with all of these actors and their different deals because otherwise they're gonna piss them off and then they're fucked. They all know this. Like they've they've recreated the studio system. That's exactly what they've done. They have, which they, I find kind of hilarious. And they keep trying to make like four quadrant movies. It's like it has to appeal to everyone. It was like, no, it really doesn't. Like this proves this movie is not for everybody. No, but it would just be it would be so easy to pull this type of shit off, especially given how much shit these studios own now. So that leads us into writing. And our main credited writer is Steven Spielberg. Of course. For the story and screenplay. Now, everybody knows who Steven Spielberg is. If you're listening to this podcast, that means you've seen movies, and therefore you have seen a Steven Spielberg movie. I have to assume. You've seen a Steven Spielberg movie. Either Indiana Jones. Uh, So you've either seen Raiders. (laughs) Yeah. Goonies. Jurassic Park. Well, he didn't write Goonies, but he... Pre- no, he did write Goonies. He did not. We will get there. Okay, whatever. He helped. If you've seen Shrek, 
you seen any DreamWorks movie? Yeah. Spielberg's got his hand on that. Yeah. So we all know that. But Spielberg does have a small career as a writer. True. He wrote the story for Ace Eli and Roger of the Skies. He wrote the story for his debut film, The Sugarland Express. He wrote Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Which I have not seen. It's really good. Okay. He wrote the story for The Goonies after this. Oh, that's right. Okay. He co-created the television series Amazing Stories and was in the writer's room for that. Mm -hmm. Wrote High Incident, was the creator and a writer on the Medal of Honor video game series. All of those video games are a Spielberg co-creation. Weird. And then he wrote AI Artificial Intelligence. He should should have been shot for that one. (sighs) And then he's horrible. Well... You know who we can blame for that? Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> What's the Kubrick rule? Heyo. For those who ha- don't remember. He is also a producer on this film. And the fun part is this is the one and only time he's filled that role in a movie that he was like actively in the creative process for. Oh, okay. He's usually an exec producer because like he's got Amblin and DreamWorks and all that shit. But he's never been an on-set producer credit. That makes sense. That's the difference with this movie. And then we have two other screenplay writers. Mm -hmm. We have Michael Grace and Mark Victor. They wrote Death Hunt, Poltergeist 2, The Other Side, and Cool World. Oh. Hell. Spielberg hired them to write the movie that wound up becoming the film Always, which is John Goodman and Richard Dreyfuss. But when he mentioned his idea for Poltergeist, the two of them were like, hey, we'd rather do that movie instead. Mm. And so Spielberg went, okay. All right. Let's work on it. What do we think of the writing in this film? I really like this. The story's great. Yeah. There are some parts of the writing that are a little sloppy. That's very fair. It's very early 80s. Like with the eldest daughter, she's a complete afterthought. Oh, yeah. The guys working on the pool, it's very, they're just, it's like they weren't written at all. Let's just show up and say stuff. It, so it's some of that stuff is very sloppy well and it's it's things that back then like you were like well we have to add this and now you know we look at a john wick and you're like no just show us them digging a pool and that's all we give a shit about yeah no that's fine and then you know the scene with uh craig t nelson's character and his boss is uh looking over the valley is just kind of like this is very expositional and not in a good way like, we need all this information, but it's this should have happened in a different place in the script. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's just stuff like that. When the paranormal investigators show up, that stuff is all written very well, very believably. It's definitely that Spielberg move of like, we're going to science out something that's not necessarily real and try and give it as much credence as we can. Yeah. And so I liked I liked all of that. That was fine. But yeah, it's just just small things that felt a little sloppy that could have been it could have used some polish, but the overall story is very good and enjoyable, so I'm I'm I ain't mad. It's a solid foundation yeah, that like, you know it's it, it's pretty hard to mess up this story and like it's a solid B plus A minus. It's like a ninety. It's good, man. It's like a it's a ninety. I will take a B plus on a script yeah. when you've got talented people behind and in front of the camera. Yeah, I give it a ninety. Both of the fears plaguing Robbie in the film are direct childhood fears of Steven Spielberg. Mm -hmm. Clowns and trees outside his window. Yeah, this is a movie that caused everybody to be afraid of fucking clowns. It's not it. It's this goddamn movie. 
Because kids saw it when they were kids. Totally. Like, fuck it. Like, it's not even that, like, okay, because that would never happen. Everybody had this goddamn clown in their fucking house. Oh, God. It's creepy as fuck. It's a really creepy fucking clown. Uh, that clown is fucking creepy. And the trees. Ooh. Like, it feels cartoonish at moments, but on the other hand, you're so, like, like seeing it through Robbie, you're going like, oh, no, that would be fucking terrifying. So here's the thing. When I look at the tree, the way the tree is formed, it looks like bodies had been pushed into the tree. That's <laughs> so good. Like, that's like the way the knots are. And I would love to be like, oh, well, that's how we molded those knots on the tree. That like, is with the skeletons. That's the magic of ILM, man. It wouldn't. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. Spielberg actually came to this story after a failed attempt at writing a sequel to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Okay. Okay. Which I feel like E.T. might also be a byproduct of. That wouldn't surprise me. Like, E.T.'s a little bit of a spiritual successor. It, it, that makes sense. Like, I'm not done talking about aliens. If you, if you want more Spielberg aliens, go watch the miniseries Taken. Mm. It is phenomenal. I've never seen it. It is so, it's like 12 episodes, but each one is two hours long. And it's one of the first things Dakota Fanning did as a young, young girl. It is so good. I watched it in college. It was great. Originally, Hooper Spielberg and the other writers were going to have Carol Ann die in the first act and haunt the house through the second. Hmm. They decided that was way too fucking dark. Fair. And like, honestly, yes, when they make her that angelic a figure killing that character would kind of just kill the momentum of the movie like it really would i would just if that happened i would be turned off i was like i don't care about the rest of this movie the driving force behind it is we have to go get her yeah that's like we well the the driving force is that they know she's not dead yeah well here's the thing like i said before this is a spooky film exactly not a horror film if you want to turn this into a horror film you kill the older daughter and then carol ann gets sucked in and then you can, then it becomes we have we can't save the older daughter whose name I don't remember, um, but we can save Carol Ann. So then we have to go after Carol Ann. Yeah, that's what that's what it becomes. But it's just like killing Carol Ann would just ruin the entire plot of the movie. Well, then it's like who cares? Let's just leave. Exactly. Yeah, you fucking just, leave. Then they're just grief stricken. Here's the thing: when a tragedy happens in a house, the family doesn't stay in that house no. very long after. It is rare that a family stays in a home when a tragedy strikes. Even like natural or not, families don't stay in a home when tragedy strikes. That's actually what makes it genius the way they decided to do it was like, we don't want to be here anymore, but we can't leave. We can't leave. Because our daughter is somewhere I, here. I would just observe. What, what about that? We don't go in there anymore. Oh, God. And they open the door and it's just like, ah! <laughs> like, this is nuts. It is a cartoon house of horrors that is done so creepily that you're like, I know that this is kind of silly, but at the same time, I'm fucking terrified. Plus. There are no deaths at all in the movie. Only light injuries, except for one, Tweety the Bird. Oh, no. no Tweety the bird did not actually die but (laughs) that is the only on-screen death we see what a what a fun line to start this movie and what a spielberg moment i love i love it you couldn't wait till school day (laughs) it's like so like that's true mom feels right there like gosh darn it every conversation between mom and dad 
was so good. Mm-hmm. Like, it was so... Like, I know she's losing her shit seeing the stuff happening on the floor, but it's also just like, <laughs> then he sees it, and they're both... I-, I can imagine us being in the kitchen like, what the fuck are we gonna do? Yep. <laughs> I've lost my fucking mind now. Pretty much. <laughs> Who could have been better? Stephen King. Possibly. He was approached, and this could have been his first direct-to-screen work, but they could not agree on terms. Eh, that makes sense. And this is, like, peak Stephen King years. Yeah. So. He was probably still drinking too much. Oh, absolutely. So, like, no This is very much his drunk years. No disrespect, Stephen, but you were probably drinking too much. Directing. Our director for this film is credited as Toby Hooper. Okay. Before this, Toby Hooper did The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Eaten Alive, Salem's Lot on television, and The Fun House. After this, Life Force, Invaders from Mars, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, Spontaneous Combustion, Night Terrors, Toolbox Murders, Mortuary, and Destiny Express Redux. Okay. So, this is where things get complicated. Spielberg had seen Toby Hooper's work with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And like a lot of people, he was super impressed. For a low-budget horror movie, it got the attention of a lot of people. It's an open debate to this day as to who had actual control over this film. Cooper or Spielberg? It could be both. Spielberg wanted to make this movie himself. His contract for E.T. would not allow him to. That makes sense. So he then decides to collaborate with Toby Hooper. He's like, you're a great horror director. I've got this movie. It's a little different. Mm-hmm. but I want you to do it because you will get the spooky part right. And the problem was E.T. had a bunch of delays. E.T. was a complicated production. So Spielberg was like, well, why don't I go pop in and check on this movie? Oh, okay. So at one point, Spielberg gave an interview and said, quote, Toby isn't a take charge sort of guy. If a question was asked and answer wasn't immediately forthcoming, I'd jump in and say what we could do. Toby would not agreement, and that became the process of our collaboration. Mm. Frank Marshall then came out in the trades and said, quote, The creative force behind the movie was Steven. Toby was the director and was on set every day, but Steven did the design for every storyboard and was only absent for three days of that production with George Lucas in Hawaii. Mm. Hooper <laughs> then fired back, saying, I did half the storyboards for this movie. Basically saying, we had a 50-50 collaboration. Yep. And Spielberg had to come out and write a lengthy apology letter after a Directors Guild investigation was open. <laughs> yeah. Because, like, this is this is all going out publicly. Mm-hmm. And the DGA's like, okay, hold the fucking phone. Who made this movie? That's a fair question. <laughs> and so Spielberg wound up writing an apology and clarified it. He said it was a unique relationship. Hooper was basically a director and ground general. And he was dealing with the technical elements of directing. Mm -hmm. While Spielberg, according to a lot of the cast, and even Hooper at times, was working with the actors, doing a lot of creative type work, Mm -hmm. and kind of the aesthetic stuff. So that's why I think this movie feels like it's got Steven's print all over it. Yeah. is because he's getting the shots and the the sort of visuals that he wants. And Hooper's just in charge of doing the day-to-day operations type stuff. That's still so disrespectful. I Here's the thing. Hooper, I think, backed off of his stuff because I think Hooper had that arrangement. Well, 
but here's the thing. Hooper hadn't done much before. That's fair. This is probably his first big studio pick. Steven fucking Spielberg shows up and is talking to you about things like, well, I think we should do this. Okay. Yeah. It's the same bullshit women deal with all the goddamn time. Someone more powerful shows up who basically helped you get your job. You're going to defer to their expertise. This is their script. Spielberg should have directed it himself. He, he, he has every right to be pissed, but he also has to recognize you're in a lose-lose situation with him on your set. So either you accept the fact that you're doing Steven Spielberg's script and he is on your set every fucking day because he's wants to see what's going on and you're basically his puppet. <laughs> like, you have to accept that. And, and I think, honestly... That's what the contract was. Well, I mean... Now, there's there's other stuff involved here, too. Zelda Rubenstein was incredibly negative about Hooper. And there were several actors who were saying, like, we're pretty sure he had a drug problem. He wouldn't show up at times. Spielberg would need to get us to where we needed to be. Other actors disputed that. So it was like a whole split situation. There's yeah. lots of different sides and stories to it. Regardless, he's in a shitty position. Yeah. He definitely is. And Steven put him there. That's Steven's fault. Oh, yeah. It's 100% his fault. By the way, Steven Spielberg, kind of an asshole. Uh, kind of. Kind of. Seems like an okay guy, but... Okay guy, but he's one of those guys who forgets that you're the dude with all the power. Oh, my God, yes. That's who he is. He forgets that he's the guy with all the power. So then... He get the, a situation like this happens. And it's like, oh, you, you know, you may have thought, oh, our relationship's so great. And it's like, no, you're the dude with all the power. Of course, the guy sitting next to you who's actually supposed to be in charge is going to be like, yeah, that sounds good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I want you to leave, please. I want you to go, sir. I don't know. How do I say that to you nicely? It is incredibly complicated. Adding to that is that. Hooper edited his first cut after 10 weeks, mm -hmm. got through the editing process. Spielberg went off and worked with ILM on the special effects. Mm -hmm. So he went and directed all of that stuff. Yeah. Which is fair. Hooper doesn't have a relationship with ILM. Spielberg obviously does. Yep. So that makes sense. Yeah. But then Spielberg took the cut and redid it because he has final cut on the movie. Oh, he has final cut on the movie. That's his right. And took over all of post-production. So either it's exactly like we say, and that's, and we have to speak like this weird relationship because we don't know. Sure. There's also this possibility. It's like Hooper completely started fucking this shit up. And Steven was like, okay, I'm just going to take this over because <laughs> this is a disaster. Yeah, but there's there. And, you know, it is possible he had a substance abuse problem. But it's also where, you know, it was really more of like, first unit and second unit director and that's really how it should have been and it should have been on the up and up like if toby it was like toby did the lion's share of the work and he's gonna get the directing credit but we were co-collaborators yeah but then spielberg should have been much more forceful in saying like look while we collaborated together and worked pretty much in sync on the movie i'm giving toby the credit on it's this. it's he is executing my vision exactly because I can't be, I'm not allowed to because of my other thing. And especially that quote of not a take charge guy. Ooh, 
That is nothing you should be saying in public. That is disrespectful. Basically, it's not good. Basically, you're saying this dude wasn't making decisions, so I made all the decisions. Yes. Yeah. That's really not polite. <sighs> I think he learned. I think he learned from again, this. Again, again, this is Spielberg not realizing you're the dude with all the power. Yeah, he, he kind of forgets that every once in a while. <sighs> but anyway, what do we think of the... Directing of Toby Hooper, a.k.a. possibly Steven Spielberg. It's fine. (laughs) It's fine. On to the cast. Now, an interesting note about the cast. They intentionally wanted to cast unknowns. Which is typical in a horror film. Typical in a horror film, but also because he wanted realism of the family. He felt like if I put in famous actors, it's going to draw away from the realism of this family unit. Eh, Not always. Eh, I don't know. So we start off with Craig T. Nelson as Steve Freeling. It's America's dad. Before this, he was in Scream Blackula Scream, Flesh Gordon, and Justice for All, Where the Buffalo Roam, Private Benjamin, Stir Crazy, and The Formula. After this movie, because this breaks him. Yeah. He's in All the Right Moves, The Osterman Weekend, Silkwood, The Killing Fields, Poltergeist 2, The Other Side, Action Jackson, Shroop Beverly Hills, Coach on Television. Turner and Hooch, Ghosts of Mississippi, The Devil's Advocate, Wag the Dog, The Skulls, The District on Television, The Incredibles, The Family Stone, Blades of Glory, The Proposal, The Company Men, Parenthood on Television, Soul Surfer, Get Hard, Grace and Frankie on TV, (laughs) Gold, Incredibles 2, and recently Young Sheldon. What do we think of Craig T. Nelson in this film? We're not just going to have Craig T. Nelson Appreciation Hour. Uh, I love Craig T. Nelson. First discovered him on Coach, which was just one of those shows that played like early more. It was like, oh, we're going to have having a full hour of Coach every day from like 10 to 11. Coach is one of the most inoffensive, rerunnable shows in all of all time. That was also all about football, and I didn't care. <laughs> it was all about with, football in the with, most base level way. <laughs> with Patrick the Starfish uh-huh. and Jerry Van Dyke. Yeah. And I still enjoyed that show. That's good writing, let me tell you. <laughs> I love Craig T. Nelson. I mean, he's America's dad. I'm here for this. It's really funny, though, watching this and being like, this is before you were America's dad. It, yeah, it is very funny. This is how you got typecast as America's dad. Yeah, which is great. He's so young, but he looks the exact same. And then when he shows up and the investigators are there and they put on the makeup on his oh, eyes. Oh, his under eyes. I love it. Like, I love it. The makeup's doing amazing work, but he just looks so dead to life. His everything. blank stare is so good. I I just, I really like him. I believe him. I enjoy him. He's just, he knocks it out of the park in this role. Yeah, he's, he's very enjoyable. Next, we have Jo Beth Williams as Diane Freely. Before this, we saw her in Kramer versus Kramer. Is she the neighbor? I think so. Yeah, I think she's the neighbor mom. Okay, the neighbor who he's best friends with. Yep. Okay. And then also Stir Crazy. After this, Endangered Species, The Big Chill, The Day After on television, Poltergeist 2, The Other Side, everybody came back for the sequel. Yep. Dutch, Stopper, My Mom Will Shoot, Wyatt Earp, Jungle to Jungle, so many straight-to-TV movies. Pretty sure she's like a lifetime regular. That makes sense. Fever Pitch, Crazy Love, and In the Land of Women. Okay. What do we think of Jo Beth Williams? She's fun, but she has, she's like a weird moving target because I don't really know 
what kind of like mom she's supposed to be. Because like sometimes she's like she's like the mom who's smoking pot. And then uh-huh. she's the mom who's cool with the weird construction workers, not giving two shits that they're hitting on her teenage daughter. And then she's like and, into esoteric mysticism. And then they're stealing from her kitchen, her the food that she's literally cooking on the stove. And it's just, she's very inconsistent. Her character's very inconsistent. So it's kind of hard to know how much of that is her. It's weird. But when it matters, I feel like she pulls through no matter what. Yeah, I love those scenes where she's talking to Carol Ann when she's in, like, when she's like, it's mommy. Like, it's just, it's, like, she she gets that heartbroken mom thing really well. And all the creepy shit with the chairs. And then, like, I really dig how she's like, holy fuck, look at this. No, 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 no. Stop everything you're doing. Like, the thing about that was she thought it was really cool. Like, at first she was scared, but then she's like, wait, watch this. I know. <laughs> then she, like, got obsessed with it. And that was kind of cool. I, I like that she's, like, the kind of chill hippie mom. We never got a clear turn from that into, this is fucked up beyond belief and they have my daughter. Yeah. Like, I never saw that turn in her acting. Yeah. And then, like, she's only that way with Carol Ann. We don't see her that way with the sign or the older daughter. No, not with Robbie. Enough. Yeah. So it's it's very inconsistent and it's hard to know how much of that is the writing. And I'm sure it's mostly the writing. Yeah. But then is any of that you? But, you know, when she needs to be freaked out, she's appropriately freaked out. That's fair. Mm-hmm. She had reservations about the swimming pool scene in the finale. That's fair. Because of all the electrical equipment That's... standing around the open water. Yeah, I don't want to get electrocuted. So Spielberg, and this is where he did add value here, talked her down. By crawling into the pool to shoot the scene. He gets in the water and he looks at her and goes, now if a light falls in, we both fry. I was like, such a Spielberg move. I appreciate that. Uh That calmed her down enough. She decided, okay, I'll get in the pool. Next, we have Beatrice Strait as Dr. Lesh. We have mentioned her before. She is an Oscar winner from Network. She's the wife. (gasps) She was the wife who was on for like 15 minutes. Five five minutes and won the oscar and we were like man even even you hating that movie in general still loved that scene because that scene was fantastic i didn't i didn't hate that movie but the movie was really poorly directed i don't need to go listen to that episode again that movie had really shitty directing i don't care what you people say (laughs) it was really crappy directing but yeah she is making an appearance now as our main parapsychologist cool and totally believable. She's cool. I like her. I, like you said, a lot of it is the writing. They did an amazing job with those characters. They did. Yeah, I definitely believed those people. I believe that like they actually cared. I love the fact that they're not like the ghost adventures crap that we see now. Yeah, then they're not just like two nerds with a computer when they have computers. <laughs> but they're like really intrigued by this. I do like that one of them gets too freaked out to come back. Which, of course, has to happen. They're actual psychologists. Mm -hmm. And the whole reason they're studying this is they're like, whether or not this is real, Mm -hmm. it is causing a real effect on people. Sure. And so we want to both investigate the actual science behind this and also investigate the people and try and see if there's something wrong with them that we can help, too. Yeah. And then they encounter 
the biggest fucking thing they've ever seen. <laughs> and are like, oh shit, this yeah. is for real, for real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, they were such great characters and then they cast it so well by having somebody with that kind of gravitas to play that role. We then have Heather O'Rourke as Carol Ann Freeling. She was six years old when they made this movie. Wow, that's great for a six-year-old. Six or seven. This is really her first big film role after this. She had a little run on Happy Days. She was in Poltergeist 2, The Other Side, and Poltergeist 3. She died in 1988 after a severe intestinal blockage. Mm. She had a congenital condition. Mm. And it's it, it was an incredibly just tragic story. She died very, very young at like 12 or 13. What do we think of Heather as Carol Ann? Um, she's, she's, I mean, she's great. I think Spielberg, uh, similar to Chris Columbus, is really good with kids. He's very good with children. Uh, he, yeah, they're both very good with children and getting performances out of kids in seemingly non-traumatic ways. Yeah, I think what's interesting is Spielberg is willing to push that boundary a little bit more than Chris Columbus does, just because of the types of movies he makes sure. with kids. Uh, but he does so in a way where he wants the kid to be okay when you come out of it. <laughs> Heather O'Rourke was chosen after having lunch with her mom and sister at the MGM commissary. Spielberg came up and said he'd like to see her screen test. She actually failed the test because instead of being scared through the audition, she just laughed the entire time. That's good. <laughs> That's actually great. I know. So Spielberg, seeing that, thought, okay, we like her, but she might actually be too young for the role. Like, that may be part of the problem. But, like, in casting horror films, you don't want kids who are scared of this stuff. You want kids who find it hilarious. Especially not this character. <laughs> well, yeah, because because that, that becomes a different problem. That reminds me of that story of um, Maleficent. They couldn't find a kid to play the young Aurora because they were all terrified of Angelina Jolie. So they got her daughter who was like two or three at the time. Cause she was like, whatever. That's mommy in a weird dress. Yeah. Basically saying this is mom. <laughs> and thanks, you know, that little girl looks a fair amount like Elle Fanning. So there you go. So he gave her a second chance. And this time he said, bring a scary storybook with you. And then he told her to scream. And she just continually screamed through the screen test until she started to cry and got the part. There you go. Mm-hmm. Of all of the scary moments in the movie, there was only one scene that really frightened Heather. Mm-hmm. And that was when she had to hold on to the headboard while the wind machine was blowing toys into the closet. Oh. As that scene was going on, she just completely fell apart and started sobbing. And Spielberg shut everything down, ran over to her, hugged her, and told everybody there, we're not doing the scene again. Yeah. Which is the bare minimum, but it's like, it's good to know that Somebody gives a shit. I mean, I like to hear. I mean, they're much better about taking care of kids nowadays. So I'm just, I'm not as, I'm not as impressed. But it's nice to know that you know people do good things. Yep. I watched some live watch with Joe Mazzello of Jurassic Park. He played Tim, and so he had lots of wonderful things to say about Spielberg. When he did that, when he did that movie, he was nah, he's 10 turning 11, maybe. So like he had lots of wonderful things to say about Steven. So yeah, it's good to know. Who could have been better? Drew Barrymore. Yeah. However, she was in the other movie. Spielberg liked her, her screen test for Poltergeist, but he thought he needed someone even more angelic than Drew. Is she more angelic than Drew? 
If you're judging by how she gets styled in E.T., absolutely. No, I think Drew has a more angelic face. Maybe. But if I'm looking at the script, Drew would be wasted in Poltergeist. A little bit. She would be absolutely wasted. Because I'm looking at E.T., Gertie has to do more. Yes. In E.T. And girl plays Carol Ann. I don't think she could have pulled off the stuff in E.T. Drew Barrymore could have done anything. They're really different roles. She's Barrymore. She could have done anything. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, But she would have been wasted in Poltergeist. She was not wasted in E.T. Yeah. And I, I just I like this the way Heather is able to just dead stare in that camera with kind of almost spooky glazed over eyes mm-hmm. and kind of being giddy at what's going on. That quality from her performance is maybe the spookiest thing in the whole movie to me. The fact that she's not terrified by what's going on, but actually kind of intrigued. It's just like, oh no. So the thing that I, that kind of intrigued me is that when it first started, I thought she was seeing somebody in it, but she's not. She's just hearing them. So that's what I found interesting. Yeah, it's ooh, ooh, the whole opening of the movie is just fucking scary. So freaking yikes! Zelda Rubenstein as Tanjana. This is actually her first big film role. Hmm. After this, she did Francis, Sixteen Candles, Poltergeist Two, The Other Side, Poltergeist Three, Teen Witch, Picket Fences, Little Witches, and Southland Tale. What do we think of Zelda Rubenstein in this movie? I mean, she's got that iconic voice. She does. I think she's, yeah, I've seen her in Teen Witch, and she's been in some TV things, too, I believe. She shows up in a lot of things in a very similar role to this one. Yeah, oh, totally. She's just that, she, it's that voice. It's that Oracle voice. I I like her. She's used well. They they had to have somebody come in with that sort of, it, those it, sort of powers. It's kind of one of those, like, it feels like stunt casting in that it's so featured. You're just like, oh, it's that lady. Um <laughs> Even though at the time it wasn't at all. Totally, but like it's that type of role. Yeah. But yeah, she's great. Her day job was actually as a medium and a psychic. And she she supposedly had actual psychic ability, able to have visions of premonitions. Interesting. That's probably a big reason why she got the part. Mm. Even though she had to audition for the role four times. Who could have been better? Shirley MacLaine. No. Well, stunt casting, but psychic connection. But no. Hmm. She turned it down to do Terms of Endearment instead. Yeah, she got an Oscar for that. So, so you know, not a bad choice. You know, that was like a big deal for her. I would kind of just love to see what would have happened. Because Shirley MacLaine's a badass. All right. And that is it for our main cast. Okay. So we move to Arpons. Dominique Dunn as Dana Freeling, the sister of Griffin Dunn, the actor. She was also part of the quote-unquote curse from this movie. Uh, she died very tragically at the age of 22. Um, by the way, we're not going to discuss the curse on this because the curse is pretty much not even a thing. It all dealt with coincidental deaths of people who already had like chronic issues or like some oh. tragedy. Yeah, the curse was just people connecting dots that don't were just absurd. Well, like Heather O'Rourke died of a congenital issue. And then in the second movie, there's another character that to the actor died, but they also had a health problem. So it was all it was all stuff that was like people knew this might happen. It's, like it's not like the stuff with like the exorcist. No. Where is, it's like, what the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. They they talk about this movie having a curse and it really doesn't. No. 
Oliver Robins as Robbie Freeling. After this, he appears in Airplane 2, the sequel, and Poltergeist 2, the other side. He does just a lot of his own one-off projects now. Nothing big, but he's just kind of doing stuff. He did have a pretty scary moment on set. When they were filming the clown strangling scene, he actually started to choke. Oh. Spielberg and Hooper saw him, and the way he was choking, they thought it was an ad-lib. When he was saying, I can't breathe, and they kept directing him. Mm. Spielberg finally noticed that he started to turn purple and then immediately rushed over to get the clown's arms off of him. Mm. We have Martin Casella as Marty. He was actually Steven Spielberg's assistant on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, 1941 and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now he's a playwright and a librettist for some musicals. Mm, Okay. Richard Lawson playing Ryan, the other paranormal investigator. Mm -hmm. He was in How Stella Got Her Groove Back and Four Colored Girls. James Karen as Mr. Teague. He was a character actor who had a little run in the 70s and 80s with Capricorn One, The China Syndrome, The Return of the Living Dead, and Wall Street. And at the time, he was the spokesman for Pathmark Supermarkets. He actually got hate mail from Pathmark customers saying they wouldn't shop at the store anymore after what he did to the Freelings. (laughs) That's hilarious. I mean, this is the kind of movie that when it comes out, in the time it comes out, that people would be like, legitimately terrified of people are dumb well like this movie in 1982 feels like the ring in 2002 Mm. same vibe whereas like if we were in that time this would be like holy fucking shit (laughs) and it's just different sensibilities and finally dirk blocker as jeff shaw the guy riding the bicycle with the six packs of beer Mm -hmm. this is hitchcock from brooklyn 99 (laughs) that's him (laughs) fumbling beers and actually his father is dan blocker the longtime character haas cartwright from bonanza so he's like son of television royalty is playing hitchcock my old case you're dumb and i hate you i'm sorry every time i see those two that's all i think of ah it's good shit I'm sorry, I love that show. <laughs> I know cops are horrible, defund the police, but I love Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It's a good show. They made a good cop comedy. All right, trivia. Heather O'Rourke got to keep the pet goldfish that Caroline gets in the movie. That's cute. The jump cut in the spirit sequence where they're in their kitchen with all the stuff moving around, and then suddenly they're at their neighbor's doorstep, had to be abruptly done because Pizza Hut took offense to a line in which Steven says that he hates Pizza Hut. <laughs> I mean that's fair. When you're when you're using them in your movie for promo, mm-hmm. yeah, I get it. The house used for filming is in Simi Valley, and it is still there today. The family that was living there sold it in 2009. Hmm. So creepy. The sequence where Diana's attacked in her bedroom was filmed in a rotating box with a stationary camera. Yep. This allowed the appearance of Diane being dragged along the walls and ceiling. Excellent use of that. Oh, I love that. Every time I see that effect, I get excited by it. I I just, it's so effective and it never gets old. I mean, and once somebody figured out how to do that, people have just taken it that much farther. I mean, you watch Inception and you're just like, holy fuck balls. Uh-huh. And, you know, the Jamiroquai videos and just all that shit and yeah, and this is like a really early use of it, but yeah. it's done to such good effect. Yeah, it's done really well. The steak was done by putting an actual steak over a slot cut between the tiles and the countertop. Mm-hmm. So family must have gotten new counters 
Yeah. That would have been nice. <laughs> Two wires were attached to the stake, and then a special effects operator was under the cabinets moving the wires to make it look like it was crawling along the countertop. Okay. The chairs were also completed using wires. Okay, yeah. Which is even more impressive considering they didn't have effects to wash that wire out of the scene. Them pulling it across the floor was all done with wires, which means they had to get that shot at exactly the right angle. Yeah. But uh, good on them. The house getting sucked into the black hole was a model about four feet across and took a few weeks to construct. They put the camera directly above the model, mounted over an industrial strength vacuum generator. So a shop vac, basically. Yeah. The model had wires attached to different points through the back of the house and then into the vacuum sack. So the vacuum would pull on the wire and it would break apart. They wound the camera up to 300 frames per second to get it that super kind of slow-mo feel, turned the vacuum on, and yanked on the wires while special effects personnel shot the house with pump-action shotguns. <laughs> what? Which I think gets the, like, explodey things that you see in it. They completed the entire scene in, like, two seconds. Wow. But they had to wait for weeks for the film to develop to figure out if they got the shot. Otherwise, they were going to have to do it again. Jeez. They got it in one take. That's good. Spielberg got the finished scene on location for E.T. and was like, ooh, 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 I want to see it. So he gave it to the projectionist. The projectionist thought it was dailies for E.T. and was freaked the fuck out when he saw a house imploding upon itself. Mm -hmm. Spielberg now has the remains of that house encased in perspex and sitting on his piano. (laughs) That's cool, though. He's such a dork. Oh, for sure. The biggest nerd in Hollywood history. No, that's not true. Yeah, fair. The movie Steve and Diane are watching while they're smoking pot is called A Guy Named Joe, the movie that Spielberg remade as always in 1989. Mm. There were a few strange events and occurrences around the film, which is where we get the whole thing with the curse, which I don't agree with, but Jo Beth Williams found the pictures in her house crooked every time she came home from filming. No matter how she straightened them, they would always hang crooked. <laughs> Zelda Rubenstein had a vision of her dog saying goodbye to her during the filming. Hours later, her mother called her to say that her dog had passed away. No. And one of the reasons that the curse persists to this day is that the film used actual skeletons for the filming. Gross. The crew determined that fake skeletons would have been too expensive to produce. Mm-hmm. So... Okay, I, I get it if people donate, but um, the actress who had the most interaction with them, Jo Beth Williams, was not made aware of this fact until filming was complete. Yeah, I'm... Uh, no! Um... Uh-uh! Like, okay, on the one hand, that's kind of shady. On the other hand, if you had told her, she would not have gone near them. So this is kind of one of, you're fucked either way. Uh, it's like the alien reaction when they find John Hurt. And you find out it was like, no, they didn't know anything was about to happen. Yep. And it's like, that's kind of fucked up. But also, that's a better reaction than you ever would have gotten. Yeah. I'm kind of fucked either way. (sighs) Not good. The scene where Diane opens Carol Ann's bedroom to hear the screaming when Mm -hmm. she's just trying to check on things was the first scene filmed for the movie. Yeah. The shot of the chairs positioned in a pyramid on the table was filmed in one take. The stack of chairs was put together before filming. 
But when they panned over to the kitchen, they swapped everything out before they got back. Oh, okay. So that's how they did that. Critics complained about Jerry Goldsmith's score for lulling the audience into too much of a feeling of security oh, and no. being too jarring, which I'm like, that's the fucking point. That's the whole point is like, okay, here's the thing about horror films is every element is doing something. It's suppo- is supposed to do something for you. It's either supposed to point to who the killer is or to make you feel secure when you shouldn't be or to make you feel scared when you don't need to be like it's all telling you some information same thing like it it can sometimes it's just telling you information you already know that's one of the things about go watch knives out the whole film has so many fucking layers it's a mystery so it's not a horror film there's so many layers that is telling you so many things about what's going on music the costumes the setting oh just go watch it and horror films do that too now part of the reason that people may have been doing this is that jerry goldsmith also wrote the score for the omen which is some of the creepiest fucking score music ever so like that one it's very clear they're watching a horror movie and then in this one it was like why are there happy lullabies going on it's like because it's extra fucking creepy the scores were the best things about this whole damn movie i mean i made a trailer for my podcast mini plug i have a kids on bikes actual play podcast called christmas tide ohio um and i made a trailer <laughs> and i'm i purposely used some sound effects to make it come off as extra creepy for some moments that in the actual episodes are not creepy in any way shape or form and finally the hands pulling off the face in the hallucination sequence are none other than Steven Spielberg's hands himself. And with that, it is time to rate this film. As always, we have a specific rating system for this mm-hmm. movie. I'm going to say tennis balls. Uh, okay. Yeah, I'll allow that. That's a good one for this movie. I was going to say, I don't know, like how many poltergeists? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. How many gravestones? <laughs> I, uh, like ten- I like tennis balls. Tennis balls. Tennis balls works. So, technically this is your movie? Do you see it? I guess I saw, like, since I already knew what the twist was, yeah. I guess this is kind of my movie. I'll let you have this one. Okay. How many tennis balls are you going to give this film? I think I'm going to give it three. Okay. It's a solid movie. I'm not mad about the time I spent watching this. It's aged just in the cheese factor of some of the effects. And there's some sloppiness with some writing and a little bit of some story elements. But, like, nothing that takes away from the main plot. I really want them to redo this movie. Well, they did in 2015 with Sam Rockwell. Fuck, now I gotta go watch that. Uh, I don't know. It didn't get good reviews. That doesn't mean shit. But like, I, okay, I want someone good to redo this movie. Like, I want them to do like a good job. I, I want them to do a good job. And what I really want is somebody to have the same kind of Spielberg sensibility that this movie had. I don't want them to try to make it gory or gross. I literally want the same I want there to be the same problem. I want the same problem. You can make it twins. Like, make two creepy Sanderson twins get sucked into the TV. I don't give a shit. That's fine with me. But, like, still keep, like, this family is now, like, basically stuck in this house now. Ooh, quarantine. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah, add that to it. But, yeah. I this movie is definitely ready to be redone and can be redone as a series, too. And I think would be really cool um, without without having to gore it up to make it work. Without having to gore it up and without 
or without you know i'm I'm looking at reviews for the other one and they're they're comparing it a lot to like the insidious or sinister the the lower end pg-13 ones where it's very formulaic and i'm like no let this movie be what it was which is a family drama wrapped in a shit ton of spooks oh and it could be they could also go like it's super the super tech route doesn't have to be the tv could be the computer could be the phone could be the smart house oh the smart house telling me there you go i can totally write this fucking movie but like honestly go for the pg again Uh, pg-13 see what you can do if you can if you can make a story good enough where it's spooky and here's the thing aim for a pg story with pg-13 effects i'm for it so that you can have maybe slightly more like complex like injuries in the house like glass breaking and like house really fucks you up i don't know it, uh, nobody needs to like die, die like some some bad dude can die but like but there's like there's there's lots of room to to take this and, and run with it again it's yeah. just a solid story for me my initial impulse was a four but the more you talk about the sloppiness i think i'm gonna go three and a half tennis balls okay because I think, yeah, the sloppiness gets to it and, and different stuff like that. But I would sit down and watch this again. It was so enjoyable. It Like, I'm not mad. I'm not mad about no. this. Like, I'm curious about the other ones. Like, not super curious, but I'm just like, hey. Well, that is it for Poltergeist. Yeah. Solid fun. Yeah. Well, I think uh, we're still going to cover Candyman, even though the new Candyman got pushed to 2021. And other horror film news, I actually have not told you this, but uh, Neve Campbell has confirmed for Scream 5. Holy shit. I'm so excited. She put something on her Instagram like a week and a half ago and I was just like, <gasps> please, please tell me they're going to bring. They better bring Stu back. Stu, Stu's got to be. Stu better be one. fucking at it. Like, uh, it would be so good. I so hope so. I believe David Arquette is also confirmed. Good. And Courtney Cox should also be confirmed. Excellent. Or like I believe those two were in talks because of course their relationship is an aspect to be considered. It's it, it it's a strain. <laughs> it's it's an aspect to be considered. Absolutely. Yeah. So but, man, you gotta bring the gang back together if you're gonna do it. But yeah, I'm super excited. I need to go watch the TV series. Because I've heard mostly good things. So like, oh, it's total schlock, but in a fun way. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. So yeah, I was super excited to hear that. So I think we'll be covering Candyman. And we haven't completely decided what else we're going to cover. Interesting. So who knows what next week we'll bring? Who knows? Who knows? So until next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.